The reading is taken from Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, and this can be found on page 1176 of the Church Bibles and will also appear on the screens. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. If I can give my own welcome to that that Adam gave earlier. My name is Jonathan G. I'm the vicar here. You are very welcome if you're here for the first time, and indeed if you're regular and here every week. Our passage today is both about marriage and about Christ and the church. So whether you have been married, you are married, you will be married, uh, we're all part of the church, and this is very relevant to all of us. If I just say a word, there's a few of you who've still got little people in. If you head to the back, you can still hear the sermon, uh, but then it's less distracting for others who are trying to around. So let's pray blessing on all of us, whatever our situation in life, as we listen to God's word together. We praise you, Lord God, for your great fatherly love for all of us, whatever age we are, male or female, single or married, whether we've been Christians for many years or whether this is all totally new. We pray now that you would come by your spirit and speak to us, both about marriage but also about what it is to be part of the church uh, living your way. Speak now, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, obviously, this passage is very much about marriage. We are, for those of you who joined us, we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's the church in Ephesus. And we've got to the nitty-gritty bit. This time is about marriage. Next time is about parenting and children and work. Uh, there's been lots of great theology. Uh, we've been chosen by God, forgiven, adopted. He's revealed his plan to us. He's filled us with his spirit. We've been forgiven by grace. We couldn't earn it. God has plans for us. And we're included in his great worldwide church. That's the theology of chapters 1 to 3. Then chapter 4 starts talking about how we live this out. And last week we were thinking about that image of being light in a dark world. 
and how we need to be filled by God's Spirit uh, if we're going to live this out. And now the very practical payoff in the hardest places of all to live this out, at home and at work and with those closest to us. Uh, but just I want to speak a bit about marriage first because there's a verse here uh, that is crops up throughout the Bible, and we'll come back to the Ephesians context, but this is a verse that we get uh, throughout the Bible about marriage. This is verse 31 of our chapter, Ephesians 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And if there's one verse that uh, is central to the Christian understanding of marriage, it's this one, and I just want to give a sort of overview of this before we home in on Ephesians 5. Uh, the Bible is very clear that God is totally in favor of marriage. He invented it. The Bible starts with a wedding of Adam and Eve, uh, and it finishes with a wedding, uh, the wedding between Christ and his church and the great union of heaven and earth, the great wedding feast in heaven. And all the way through the scriptures, the closeness of a husband and wife in how a marriage should be is an illustration of the closeness between God and his people. God constantly tells us he loves us as a loving husband or father. Uh, we're not so good at the loving him back part. Uh, but the marriage illustration, and indeed the parent-child illustration, these closest human relationships are a picture of God's relationship with us. Uh, this verse that we'll, we'll look at a bit comes right at the beginning in Genesis uh, it comes on the lips of Jesus as he teaches into marriage. It's here from St. Paul as he teaches it into marriage. So I just thought we'd have a little look at those, at Genesis, at Jesus, and then we'll land back in Ephesians chapter 5. So the first mention of this verse is right at the beginning of the Bible as God creates everything. Genesis 1 tells the picture, the big picture of creation. God makes everything. It's not an accident. He does it deliberately and carefully. And the pinnacle of his creation is human beings, male and female. Everything is good. Uh, it's very good. And God has invented man and woman as part of that. Genesis 2 zooms in in more detail into this. We see that God has made a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. Eden means delight and put uh, the man in that garden to look after it God's way. And before the man rebels against God, we find something that's not good. So in Genesis 2.18, we read this. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam is there in a perfect relationship with God, in a perfect environment. But the first thing is not good is he's lonely. And just as an aside to that, that is something we must minister to as a church. Many people in our community are lonely long before anything else is, is difficult. And that is something that the church must be part of, including people in. So you have the wonderful story, some of you will know it very well, of how God invents all the animals and Adam names the animals. But among the animals, there isn't a suitable companion for him, not even his dog. I'm very fond of my dog, but that is not nearly enough uh, for Adam. And God invents the woman. You get this beautiful story, this poetic story of how Adam falls into a deep sleep and God takes a rib and makes a woman out of her, equal to her. The old commentator Matthew Henry says God doesn't make the woman from man's head. She's not meant to rule over him. And he doesn't take her from his feet. She's not meant to be trampled underfoot by him. But from, from his side to stand equal with him. 
from close to his heart to be loved by him, from under his arm to be protected by him. It's beautiful stuff, and it's a good theology of marriage. It's a lo- and uh, Adam is thrilled. Because we are made in God's image, and God is relational. We now know that God is Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within God, there is relationship. At the heart of the universe is a relationship of love. Very different, say, the Islamic view of God, of Allah on his own, independent, out, not in relationship. It, it leads to a coldness in relationship. Whereas Jesus revealed God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we are made in his image. So we are made for relationship. And now when it says I'll make a helper suitable for him, there is no sense that the wife is an inferior. She is not like Santa's little helper. Quite the reverse. In the Psalms, God is described as our helper, but the woman is not meant to rule over man either. It's a neutral word. It's someone, the idea is a partner, a sustainer, together to share in God's care of creation to be fruitful and multiply. And the Hebrew word suitable has this sense of parallel but different. So you get it of sort of banks of a river. There's the opposite bank. It's the opposite bank, but it's different. Uh, And God doesn't make another man. He makes a woman equal but different. And when God brings the woman to the man, Adam bursts into the first song, the first bit of poetry in the Bible, essentially saying, at last, this is better. This is just what I'm looking for. And you have this beautiful thing of the two being one flesh, somehow reflecting how God, who is Trinity, is one, uh, two become one. Uh, and in Genesis, you get this verse from Ephesians, Genesis 2.24, as it describes it. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Uh, now, every time I preach at a wedding, I say this takes a certain amount of working at, and I usually, some of you will have heard my illustrations loads of times, which is why other people get invited to preach at weddings. <laughs> but I always say where two streams come down a mountain, there's a certain amount of white water before they settle on their way together. And so it is in marriage. Two becoming one, it takes a lot of adjusting to. Uh, You come from different families, there's different ways of doing things. You either want to do something the way your parents did it or the opposite to the way your parents did it, and that may be different to your partner, and it needs adjusting. And these great tensions come out over the tiniest things, uh, which is where the jokes about the toothpaste tube and the Lucy come over. It's not really about that, but there's tension going on. Uh, I usually tell the story of Juliet and I, the tension came over, and the tiniest thing of when we had coffee after a meal that uh, I thought coffee was really part of the meal and the washing up could wait. And Juliet's family wash, uh, would have the meal, do the washing up, and then sit down for coffee together. Now, neither is better or worse, but they're different. And we had to work out what we do about that. And people would say, so how did you resolve it? And I'd say, well, we had five children, so we never sat down for coffee. And was, uh, uh, what tends to happen is we make the coffee while we wash up. So it, it's all sort of, it works. We've we worked a way around that one remarkably. Uh, I dug out, actually I was preaching at my son Timmy's wedding uh, a month ago, and I found this old article from the Times about this very thing, Wedded Bliss and the Trouble with Marriage, and the subheading in this article was to love, honour and argue. Quote, based on a recent survey, 35% of couples argue more than once a week. Couples aged 18 to 34 with children under four have the most arguments. Money is the greatest cause of arguments, followed by personal habits, children, housework, sex, parents, and friends. 
One of the most peculiar findings is that couples in Scotland and the north of England are twice as likely to argue over matters of personal hygiene. Who knew that? It finishes, the way a couple handles its arguments is the single most important factor in the success of their relationship. And it's getting at the fact that this isn't an easy thing to become one when two people become one. I remember around the time we got married nearly 30 years ago, I used to watch Neighbours. This was at the time when Kylie was just sort of 17 or 18 and getting married to Jason Donovan on Neighbours. But Madge Ramsey, that great philosopher from a previous generation, said this, they ought to give instruction books, not certificates. <laughs> because marriage is difficult. Two becoming one. But the, it reflects something of who God is. It's a union of more than one person. We are made in God's image for depth of relationship. The Bible has lots to say about it. He invents marriage. It's his idea. He gives clear instructions. And when it goes wrong, it's usually because one or other party or both have ignored the instruction. Now, before I move on, it's worth saying that God doesn't call everyone to marriage. Jesus was not married. St. Paul was not married. Some people are called to singleness. Some people find themselves single through bereavement or the tragedy of divorce. Some people never find a person who's right for them. Uh, God doesn't call everybody to marriage. Uh, marriage won't solve all your problems. Quite the opposite. It will give you a whole new set. My wife, Juliet's favorite saying on marriage is this. A husband is someone who will stand beside you in all the problems you would never have had if you'd remained single. <laughs> and uh, I think after 30 years, she would underline all that now. Now, we all need, we are all made for relationship. So whether single or married, we all need significant friendships of depth with other people. Uh, if you're married, your partner cannot provide everything that's needed. Friendship. We need friendships beyond. Uh, but in the church, we must provide, find a place where everybody, single or married, older or younger, rich or poor, whatever the circumstance, can find a place of belonging and depth. We're made for relationship. So that's how the Bible starts with marriage. We're made in God's image for depth of relationship. We find Jesus quotes the same verse uh, in, in his day. So in Jesus' day, there was a controversy over marriage and divorce, as there has been throughout uh, history. God has wired this uh, design for marriage into us, every society, and yet we find it difficult to live together for, uh, because, since the fall, after, because of sin. And so there was this controversy in Jesus' day, and there were two main schools of thought led by Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. I can never remember which way around they are, but one of them was very strict that marriage is for life unless there's adultery. Otherwise, that's it, you work at it. The other one was very lax. Oh, if your marriage isn't working out, try again. And in the days when women did not have the same dignity as men before Jesus gave them that dignity, uh, the man had tremendous power. And the other, this other rabbinic school basically said to the men, if you don't like her cooking, then divorce her and find another. Terrible. And this was the controversy of the day. And people came to Jesus and said, what do you think? And this is what Jesus said, Matthew 19, 3 to 6. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Uh, which was what the rab one rabbi at school said. If there's any reason, just divorce and start again. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, and here's our key verse, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And Jesus went on to give permission for divorce when there's been adultery. St. Paul talks about where one partner shares the Christian faith and the other doesn't if one chooses to walk away. But it's only in extreme situations. So Jesus is saying God's invented marriage and it is for life. It's not for eternity. Uh, We'll come on to that. Marriage stops with death. But it is for this life. It's about love and faithfulness. And that reflects the God who is loving and faithful. We say, till death us do part. Now, Jesus never said it would be easy. And when I take a wedding, I stand here before the couples, and they promise to love uh, whatever's going on, whether it's better or worse, whether it's sick or healthy, whether it's rich or poor. The the vow is to put the other first, whatever they're feeling like. Uh, And I often talk about love being a feeling I'm being, sorry, love being the vow, let's get this right, rather than just the feeling. You can't vow to feel loving. The feelings come and go. You can vow to love, even when you don't feel like it. Now, winter is coming in. It was dark and wet this morning, and we're just getting, we have the the joy of an open fireplace at home and a real fire. We're just getting the logs in and everything ready. Uh, And it's one of the joys of the winter evening is a real fire. And uh, so when we light the fire, I have some newspaper down and some kindling. uh, And when you light it with a match, the kindling flares up bright and strong. But the point of that is to light the bigger twigs and the small branches and the bits of coal and then the bigger logs that will give heat for the long evening. Romantic love is like the flaring up of the kindling. It flares up, it dies down. It comes, it goes. What we're looking for in marriage is the commitment to love when it's difficult, through the long, tough, uh, all the things that happen that are difficult. And the trouble is that when it's difficult, it's tempting to look elsewhere. So there is a great national debate this week uh, because of all the events on Strictly. I haven't been watching Strictly. When I do watch Strictly, I'm amazed by the creativity and the beauty of the dancing. But every year, and it's been going for, what, 10, 15 years, I said to Juliet, How is it that a man or woman who are married to someone else spend 20, 30, 40 hours a week in very close physical proximity with someone else, if not their wife, and things don't go wrong? How does that... This just seems to be flirting with temptation. And Much as I love the creativity, I hate the fact that it's now become clear what they call the strictly curse of endless relationships and marriages breaking down. And it's the national debate this week uh, because that's exactly what's been going on Uh, in Strictly. If there's a problem in your own relationship and you're tempted elsewhere, we know affairs happen, marriages break down, children are devastated. It's awful for everybody. Friendships, trust, it's terrible. So Jesus says you love your partner for life. And I just want to say to anybody here who is in any way flirting with someone who's married to someone else or if you're married to someone else other than your partner, It might be by text, it might be through car journeys, it might be through uh, lunch at work more often than you would like anyone else to know. You must stop that. Marriage is for life, and in the name of God, I charge you to stop that today. Jesus says marriage is for life. 
The grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. So you water your own grass. And the other side of the fence, it still needs cutting and all the other problems come as well. Uh, so here we have this key verse that, is, that we'll pick up now in Ephesians chapter 5. That's in Genesis. It's in the teaching of Jesus. That two become one and what God has joined together, no one must separate. Quite the opposite. We must encourage couples to work at it. We have a marriage course. I say to everybody who's married, come on the marriage course. You take your car in for a service every year, and it's really just a hunk of tin and electronics. Take your marriage in for a service. It's far more valuable, and it needs to last a whole lot longer. And we'll be doing the marriage course uh, after February half term, before Easter. If you've not done that and you're married, do come on that. We also will be doing, again, the Restored Lives course, which is a wonderful course for people who've been through the tragedy and pain of separation or divorce. And it's wonderful hearing the stories of people who God has been rebuilding and putting back together after the pain of things going wrong. Uh, but let's come back to uh, Ephesians 5, because this is the key bit of marriage teaching uh, that St. Paul gives. But as he gives it, it's not clear whether he's talking about marriage or Christ and the church. Just try and uh, think this through. Which, which is the main thing he's teaching about? Uh, let's go back to verse 21 of Ephesians 5. This is where our reading start, started. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. If you've got the Bible in front of you, you will see that just before that verse, it says instructions for Christian households. Uh, the paragraph headings in the Bible are not the scripture. They're put there to just help break it up for us. Uh, one of the marvelous things about the new NIV is they've moved that a verse. It used to be between verse 21 and 22. So it said, instructions for Christian households, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And many women stop reading there. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands to wives and wives to husbands. And this is flowing out of where we were last week. Be filled with the Spirit, singing in your heart. So worshipping in your heart, thanking God encouraging one another, submitting to each other. This is an overflow of being filled with the Spirit. And if we're to do this, we need the strength of God. So at every wedding, we preach about marriage and we pray that God will give them the strength to do this. We are to submit to one another in every area of our lives. And Paul goes on to talk about parents and children and slaves and masters. Uh, so our passage today about marriage is an illustration in one particular context of what it means to submit to one another. But this is written to the whole church. We're to submit to each other, not to insist on getting our own ways on anything. But it looks different for each grouping. Husbands and wives are told to submit to one another. Parents are told to love their children and not exasperate them. We'll come on to that. Children are told to obey their parents. Wives are not told to obey their husbands. It's submit to one another, uh, to, su to submit to them. Uh, the wife gets seven verses, or seven lines addressed to her. The husband has 20 lines addressed to him. And I think that's probably because we husbands are a bit thicker than our wives, or maybe a bit more selfish, and we need it drummed in a bit more. Uh, I often say uh, that I find marriage difficult because I'm selfish, and that Juliet finds marriage difficult because I'm selfish. <laughs> and that's, there's, there's a truth in that, but the truth is actually we're both sinful beings, people that God has forgiven, that we're working at one flesh uh, together. Paul tells the husbands 
that they are to sacrifice themselves for their wives as Christ gave himself up for the church. This is an unbelievably high standard. I was talking with friends on Friday. They'd heard Emma Einson, who's principal at Trinity Bristol, going to be one of the bishops up in Cumbria soon. She had been preaching on this, and she'd read the bit about wives submitting to their husbands, and she'd said, I wish this wasn't in Scripture, but it is, so let's deal with it. The bit about husbands die for your wives, I feel like saying, I wish this wasn't in Scripture, but we need to do with it. The way marriage works is that those of us who are husbands are to give ourselves up for our wives, to sacrifice for them. And in response to that, the wife submits back. It, the, the picture is Christ and the church. And the wife is told to respect her husband in the last verse. Now, I remember when I used to take the children down to primary school. They're all a bit older than that now. But as we were waiting to drop them off or pick them up while they were infants, you listened to all the chatter going on around you. From what I reckoned, it was most of the wives who were making the sacrifices, not the husbands. Too many of the husbands were overgrown boys who'd got money and playing with their toys, and the wives were making the sacrifice. And as Carl Beach said to the men at Man Up, we need to become men, not just uh, old boys, as it were. We need, to, we need to sacrifice and die to ourselves for our wives. But I also heard too many times the wife running down her husband to others. Oh, he's hopeless. Oh, he doesn't do this. Oh, he's useless. And the scriptures tell the wife to respect their husband. And it has to be both and together. And St. Paul tells us that the model for our marriages is not our parents, it's not our friends, but Jesus. And at this point, he seems to be muddled. Is he talking about marriage or is he talking about Jesus and the church? So let me read the passage again to you and see if you can work out which it is. I'll read from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the saviour. Lovely American spelling, we need to get that changed. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their body, we might hate what it looks like sometimes, but we feed it and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And then this verse, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now if you were in one of the house churches in Ephesus where this was written and this was being read out to you, you wouldn't have had it on paper in front of you, you wouldn't have had it on your phone to look at, you just hear it. I think you're thinking... Is he talking about marriage or is he talking about Christ and the church? Which is it? And then in verse 32, Paul tells us, so let's go on, this is a profound mystery. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. This is the big thing. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. A godly marriage is not only a picture of when being made in God's image, of the relationship at the heart of the Trinity. It's also a picture of Jesus and his church that as Jesus died for us, and we then submit to him as Lord. So a marriage needs to model that as well. Uh, 
this is why marriage is so important. It's not just that it's the healthiest place for children to grow up. It's not just that it knits families together and strengthens society and community. It's that it's a pointer to who God is. It's a pointer to Christ and the church. And I think that helps me begin to understand why marriage is under such attack from the pit of hell trying to be redefined in all sorts of ways. Other societies already making it legal for three people to be married to each other. Uh, or God's intention is a man and a woman for life. That's been redefined in our day and age. We've had the whole um, Asher's Bakery case, haven't we, this week, where it's absolutely right, as the judges say, that people who are homosexual must be loved and treated with equal dignity to people who are heterosexual. That is absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that we have to say we support gay marriage as the same thing as heterosexual marriage, because it isn't. It's different. And, we need, and the freedom to say that has been honoured, and we thank God for it. To hold both those freedoms together is difficult, and we'll see the outworking of that. But I believe Satan is attacking marriage, undermining it. Not just because he hates marriages and families, but because it's a picture of who God is and it's a picture of Jesus and the church. And we must uphold it and work at it for all it's worth. Now, the way we submit to each other is different in all these contexts. Uh, so, uh, right at the end of... Uh, if we could go back to verse 33, we may need to go back to the reading to find verse 33... There we go. Each one of you must love his wife, because this was written primarily to the men, uh, and then the wife must respect her husband. It's different how we submit to each other. It looks different. So the old wedding vows tried to get at this. The old wedding vows were to love and to, uh, the husband would say to worship, love, cherish, and worship. The wife would say love, cherish, and obey. Now, obey is a stronger word than the Bible uses for wives and husbands. Children are to obey, slaves were to obey, the wife's to submit and respect. Uh, my son Timmy and Becca at their wedding four weeks ago, five weeks ago, chose to use the old vows to express something of the mutuality in this. Uh, so when a husband promises to worship his wife, worship comes from the old English words, worthship. So it's to give the wife her worth. So the wife is not God. So a husband must put God first. We worship God top. But the wife is far more valuable than the car or the dog or the football team. And she must be worshipped next. And there are too many men for whom the, the, the wife comes below this. We honour our wives, men, by worshipping them, by treating them as the most important person there is after God. If we put them before God, everything begins to go wrong. They're not God, they can't deliver. Uh, so it's like spokes on a bicycle wheel. The closer you get, the closer the spokes get to the hub, the closer to each other. The closer we get to God individually, the closer to each other. And the wife, in response to that lover, submits and in the old vows promised to obey. Though that's stronger, so I think the love and the cherish is fine. Let me give you an illustration of how this works out. Uh, Suppose, so we've got the, the fire getting ready at home. And uh, suppose I've had a very, very full day, got loads of stuff, work left to do in the evening, and I say to Juliet, oh, I haven't got time to make the fire, you go and make the fire. I may not be loving her as Christ loved the church, but suppose I say to her, thank you so much for what you've done, I've made you a fire, go and sit in front of it while I tidy up. 
Then in response to that, she's promised to say, oh, well, I did promise to obey, okay, I'll, I'll, go and, I'll go and do that. The idea is she submits to a lover, not to an ogre. There's a mutuality about it. It's not meant to be repressing, it's releasing. Uh, we need to work this through in every area. Home, marriage, it's difficult. Parenting is difficult. Work is difficult. And we are to live out what God has done for us. We're chosen, we're adopted into his family, we're forgiven, we're filled with his spirit, we're filled with the light of Jesus, we live in a dark world, we're to live this out in all these different ways, and it's hard, it's difficult, which is why we need to pray for each other. So let's stand, and we'll bring this to the Lord in prayer, and perhaps the band could come back ready to lead us in song in a moment. If you're a visitor among us, just a word of explanation. I'm going to lead in a prayer that picks up the themes of the sermon. I'm going to ask God to fill us afresh with his spirit. And we'll take a couple of minutes in quiet. That's a chance for you just to process with the Lord whatever he's doing in you. You may want to be praying about your own marriage or others, about your own relationships. There may be things you need to repent of and ask for forgiveness. There may be things you want to ask for strength for. Uh, the Lord may come and do whatever in you. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you left the glory of heaven and came to this earth and gave yourself up to be crucified on that cross, paying the price for our sin out of your huge love for us. We praise you that you rose again and are ascended and glorified and one day will return. We're sorry, Lord, that we don't love you as much as we should. Fill us with your spirit afresh and give us grace to offer our lives back to you. As we sang so easily earlier, give us grace to put that into practice. And we pray, come now by your spirit and minister to us, whether we're single or married, whether things are going well or they're not. Will you come by your spirit and pour your love into us afresh? And show us what the next step is for us in all of this. Let's just be still. praying for the service someone had a word from the Lord I'm like the dew I settle and bring you refreshment we pray Lord that that would happen that the gentle dew that brings moisture and refreshment to the grass and the plants would you do that to individuals and couples even now more Lord we pray For some of you, the word is to put the Lord first before anything else. Lord, we pray for grace to lift our eyes to you, to dare to trust you with all our relationships. Help us to see you in more of your beauty and your love for us and give us grace then to reflect that to those around
one of those uh, wonderful miracles of grace where we've got a little bit of time before the children need to be collected. So as we come to sing our last song, there is time uh, for those who'd like to just come and receive prayer. It may be uh, you're single and you want prayer. This is, maybe this is difficult or you just want the strength. Maybe you want to come as a married couple or you, your partner may not be here, but you want prayer for your marriage. If you'd just like to come forward while we worship together, our prayer team and leaders will just move among you, gently lay a hand on your shoulder and pray for God to give you grace. Uh, if you'd like to, uh, you don't have to do it now, there will be an opportunity after the service as well. But Lord, we pray that as we sing your praise, you will minister to us, whether it's we feel nudged to come forward for prayer or whether we're just worshipping you where we are. Continue by your spirit. Fill us up, we pray, and give us grace to live lives of love and faithfulness in whatever context you've put us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>